I definitely orient myself a little bit more toward, you know, don't think too much about the consequences. Try it and see where it lands you. Welcome to The Wagon Live, where each week we bring you stories from entrepreneurs around the world. This week, we've got Jeff Lin, one of the co-founders of top European equity crowdfunding site, Cedars. He takes us on a journey through the super interesting history of the company and the countless speed bumps they encountered along the way. Let's get started. Cedars, very simply, is, is a platform for investing and raising early stage capital. You know, we set out to build a market that allows businesses of all shapes and stripes, so long as they have you know, a decent level of growth ambition, uh, to raise capital ranging from very, very early seed stage all the way up to much later stage capital. Um, and then to let investors, uh, ranging from friends, family, customers of the business, up to high net worths, family offices, and even institutions, uh, invest uh, in these businesses through a fairly simple, um, uh, straightforward mechanism. Uh, and it, it's become to be called equity crowdfunding. That was sort of a, a bastardization because, you know, the crowdfunding, kickstart, what we think of as crowdfunding, what I think of as crowdfunding, Kickstarter and Indiegogo, you know, had been around for a little bit. And when we came onto the scene, people were like, oh, you're doing kind of the same thing, but with equity. And, and, and that's true, um, but it's also, I think, you know, a, a slightly limiting term. I think, you know, what we really like to think of it about and what we like to think we're doing is trying to create a transparent, efficient market in this asset class. You know, early stage business, startups, private companies, how it scale ups, however you kind of want to define it, growth, growth focused private companies um, are a really exciting thing for people to get to invest in. They're high risk, they're illiquid, there are all sorts of things that are tough about them. But from a returns perspective across a portfolio, the opportunity is just huge and investors can significantly outperform other asset classes if they're given the chance to invest in it. And that really excites us, excites me. And, and, and um, you know, that's what we've built the business around. And also, we, you know, we, we're big believers that there are great businesses to be found everywhere and that many of the traditional routes to raising capital are very network driven. They're very much, you know, do you, you know, are you hanging out with the right people at Shoreditch House, the right night, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, that's, you know, okay, fine. I mean, there's a skill in that, I suppose. But the reality is that that's not the, the full set of, of great businesses. And, you know, a lot of folks who hadn't in, in traditional ways raised, you know, angel capital or VC are actually, you know, fantastic entrepreneurs have the potential to build amazing businesses, um, but want you know, but have a better route or, a, you know, we give them hopefully a better alternative route um, uh, to raising capital. So, you know, that's, that's really in a nutshell what we do. Um, you know, we've had a, a decent, decent run so far. So we launched in 2012, we were the first regulated platform in our space anywhere in the world. Um, and since then, we've seen just shy of 300 million pounds pledged through the platform, um, funded about 530 deals to date, a little bit more than that, um, raised about 25 million pounds of equity for ourselves, um, and you know are continuing to grow significantly. We're, we're largely we're at 80% UK, but we're trying to change that. So we've opened offices in Amsterdam and Berlin last year. We've had a tech team sitting in Lisbon uh, since the beginning, and, and they continue. And we do a little bit of, of Portuguese business as well. Um, and you know, we're keen to continue expanding sort of on a, on a pan-European basis. Someday we'd love to be global. But for now, you know, Europe is, Europe is the goal. Um, and that sort of in a nutshell is who we are. I think it's pretty clear. Uh, just also as a quick note, so one of our students from our batch right now who's learning how to code with us, 
he actually raised, uh, I believe, 130k on Cedars. So, like, just to tell you, it's, it's a reality. It's actually happening. People are raising funds today on Cedars to create their own businesses, yep. which is pretty cool. Um, so, would you say that, like, any type of business uh, should turn towards crowdfunding, or yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I, I think that there, there, there are sort of two dimensions to that question. There, there's what kind of businesses can successfully yeah. raise through a platform like ours. And, and the answer to that is, is a very broad one, which is that if what you're doing is broadly understandable, yeah. it can work on crowdfunding. So if you have a really deep B2B play where, and not just the fact that it's B2B, but you're, you know, you're doing some complex enterprise solution to be sold into very, very large companies, that may not work so well. Um, but pretty much anything else does. So any B2C play is going to work. And then B2B plays where both the pro problem that you're trying to solve and the nature of the solution you know, are, are things that sort of educated lay people, bankers, lawyers, etc., who are investing on the platform can understand. That can work great. So it's a very, very wide range of businesses. We have something like 70, we classify businesses into like 17 sectors ranging from automotive and transport to SaaS to travel and leisure, you know, mostly with a tech overlay across them. But, you know, it's a really, really wide, wide sort of uh, uh, sort of range and, 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 you know, pretty much anything except for these very, very sort of niche complex business or bi not just complex, but businesses that are trading on such a complicated concept that it, they're hard to communicate, you know, to a broad audience. Um, anyone but those tends to work. And then in terms of who should, you know, look, I mean, it won't surprise you to hear that I think everybody should, but, 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 but I, I, I say that with a slight caveat, which is that I think everybody should as part of their overall funding picture. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's, we used to hope, thankfully, these, these sorts of conversations have um, stopped a bit, but every so often I used to be put on panels where it'd be like crowdfunding versus VC, you know, battle to the death. And yeah, that, that, that's nonsense. I mean, the reality is that, you know, at, at early stages when you're pre-VC, um, you know, often we will be, you know, either the only participant in the round or maybe we'll be alongside a couple of angels and that's just about stage. But as you can, because we're, we are willing to, to facilitate rounds at much earlier stages. But as you get bigger and bigger companies, you know, we have companies that have got some venture money in, they've got some angel money in, maybe they've got some other sort of institutional money in, they've got us in, and it all sort of sits together. And we're a great example of that. I mean, I said earlier, we've raised about 25 million pounds ourselves. Um, of that, about 11 and a half, 12 is institutional. Um, about another three or four is angel. Um, and the remaining 10 is crowd um, across the years. Um, and it's great. And, you know, we love it. And we get the benefits of having some amazing institutional investors behind us. We got the benefits particularly early on of having some very supportive angels. Um, and then we get the mass benefit, and there is a huge benefit, to having this crowd of about 2,500 people, all of whom have a vested interest in our success and want to see us uh, get ahead. So I do think that, you know, it, it is something that's meant for everyone or almost everyone, but not exclusively. It's something that can sit alongside other forms of funding very well. Yeah, makes sense. And so do you find now that, like, VC investors, so at some point, crowdfunding was, uh, there was this question that was raised saying, yes, but if I, you know, choose to do a crowdfunding round and I go and see a VC fund, that VC fund, that investor may look at my cap table and be like, 
hang on, yep. uh, I don't want to be doing this. So how, how have you found that this has evolved or not? So, well, so that was, yeah, I mean, look, that was one of the challenges that was posed to us constantly in early days. That when, when we first launched, you know, that was what the, probably the single thing that made companies the most nervous. Um, and we had a solution. We had a solution from day one, um, which has, has worked. You know, a lot, a lot of things when you start a business, it's like, yeah, we tried this and that didn't work and we tried this and that didn't work and we finally stumbled on something. This is one of those rare cases where the idea we had has actually proven to be the right one, which is we hold the shares of the companies um, uh, uh, that raised for us uh, as nominee for the underlying investors. So what happens from a cap table perspective is that it's just us sitting on a cap table. And for all intents and purposes, we look like a fund. So we sign documents, we do everything. So you then go to index and say, hey, I'd like to raise some money or Axel or whoever, I'd like to raise some money. And they look at your cap table and you know you might have some people you took in before us, but all of those crowd investors are just showing up as one line as us. Index needs a signature, we sign the document. And that, as soon as people sort of wrap their heads around that, and the VCs wrap their heads around that, and we built relationships with you know, most of the VCs in the UK and many across Europe, um, that problem went away. Yeah, okay, yeah, that makes total sense. And so, um, so we spoke a bit about the companies who raised through Cedars. How about on the other side, what are the, I mean, if there are some types of investors mm -hmm. who actually invest through Cedars, but uh, which, groups, demographic groups of people <laughs> are investing through Cedars, you would say? So it is very intentionally a wide range. Um, you know, we have students um, and, you know, people just sort of coming into the workforce, beginning of their careers, putting very small amounts in, 10, 50, 100 pounds per deal, but just wanting to build up a very kind of early stage portfolio. Um, at the other end, we have the silver surfer crowd, the folks who are in their 60s and 70s, who are, you know, past the point at which doing a startup themselves is going to happen, but they're really interested in the, you know, brave new world, and this is a great way for them to participate in it. But the kind of archetype, the kind of classic investor we have is 30s, 40s, 50s, professional, um, you know, largely in the UK, there's a, a large slant toward London and home counties. We're increasingly seeing across Europe also kind of capital and major financial cities. Um, and often these are professional people um, who are, you know, well-to-do, not necessarily ultra high net worth, but making, making decent incomes um, in, in successful jobs. And this is a way for them to access the, this asset class um, conveniently um, at a ticket size that they want um, and, you know, on their own terms. And, you know, one of the stories I always tell is that before we launched, we had this hypothesis that traffic would spike on weekend afternoons. The use case we sort of expected was people sitting on their tablets, on their couch, on the weekends and sort of browsing through and picking deals. Totally wrong. Uh, traffic always goes down on the weekends. Monday at 11 a.m. is the biggest spike, and there are multiple others sort of over the course of the work week, usually mid-morning and mid-afternoon. And what we kind of figured out as we delved deeper was that a large portion of our investors are successful, well-remunerated professionals who, you know, might even have gone and done a startup. But they got a mortgage, they got kids, they got other obligations, which means that it's going to be, it's not necessarily viable within their life plan, but they can take a few minutes out a couple times a day at their desk, check out what new is on Cedars, ask some questions of the company, engage, etc. And that's their opportunity to participate in the space and at the same time, 
take a portion of their capital. A lot of them will have investments in many other asset classes, but take a portion of their capital and try to achieve some some great returns. So that's really that's really kind of our classic um, uh, uh, classic. I'll, I'll tell you, I don't think he'll mind me saying this um, because he's a good friend and, and and a good shareholder. But but there's 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 a guy named Gavin Jordan. Gavin is uh, a partner um, at EY. Um, is a fantastically nice. Ridiculously intelligent guy. He's one of those guys who just he thinks like ten times faster than all of the rest of us. Um, and he joined us like the day we launched or the day after we launched, um, and has built up a portfolio of like hundreds of investments. And is apparent is very methodical about it. Is very considerate. Engages with the business, the businesses. And he simply is somebody who, um, you know, has you know he's 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 got. You know, partner of a big four accounting firm. You know, one assumes he's he's making a, a decent income, decent salary, but he really cares about the space. He really believes in the startup space um, and wants to be part of it. And so we often use him as a bit of a proxy. We talk about when we're sort of thinking about product things. You know, how do we design X, Y, or Z for the Gavin Jordans of the world? Because that is actually, you know, a great type of investor, somebody who's educated, intelligent, cares about the space, has capital to put in, likes the model that we provide. Um, and we look, we like all, the, you know, I mean, it's not the only type of investor we optimize for, but that's sort of the archetype. Yeah, I guess you have two ways of going about caring about the space. You can invest on Cedars, which is great. You can also learn how to code with Le Wagon and start uh, your yep. own company. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, um, Yeah, I, I see why being in that type of groups, you would actually invest on, on Cedars and make, it makes total sense as well. Um, so now on to more yourself. So how, how did you get in the space? Because originally you're not necessarily from the tech ecosystem. No, very, from, from very far I, I from it. Yeah, quite far from it. Um, I, I was a lawyer. You'd never be able to tell based on the suit. Now, um, <laughs> And, and as I've, still, I've told something, um, you know, I don't worry. I don't actually wear a suit most days. I've just come from something that required it. And so um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in my classic position of being wrongly dressed for at least one meeting every single day. Um, but uh, I was a lawyer. I did actually at one time, you know, dress like this all the time. Um, and, and one of the things, you know, and I, I actually I liked law. I, I, I was a corporate lawyer. I did mostly M&A, some securities work. First in New York, uh, then in London for a few years, and um, uh, you know I enjoyed it. The intellectual challenge was exciting, but the one of, one of the things that sort of happens when you're a young lawyer, generally a young corporate lawyer, is that your friends who are doing startups try to get you to give them free legal advice, um, and you know, and so I started to get very, very peripherally involved in sort of some old uni friends and all businesses who were you know setting things up and, and 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 needed a little bit of help and I just you know I loved it and I also saw that you know I was my job was basically representing very 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 big banks and corporates taking over very very big other banks and corporates and largely kind of destroying a whole lot of value in the process and you know the whole thing was You know, make, you know, making good money, but in terms of what kind of mark are you leaving on the world, it was all a little bit depressing. And, you know, I, I you know, most of you in this room, I think, will be too young to remember. A few may remember that about 10 years ago, um, Barclays fought very hard to acquire a Dutch bank called ABN AMRA. Now, I was representing Barclays, part of the team representing Barclays, and we fought for well on a year, you know, well, not a year, 
to get that deal. Um, but there was a chap up in Scotland known as Fred the Shred who desperately wanted to take that deal instead for his bank, RBS. Um, and so in the end, we lost. And by virtue of losing, Barclays survived and RBS failed. Um, and, you know, you look at those sorts of outcomes and you're just like, Jesus, what am I doing here? Um, and then on the flip side, you see a few people with absolutely no resource behind them sitting in the kind of proverbial garage or co-working space or whatever, doing really cool, innovative stuff and moving quickly and building stuff that could have real value. And, you know, I was just like, this is, I want to do this. Like, I want to somehow, I don't know what I want to do but it, with this, but this is where value is being created. Like, and, and part of it is just the old sort of mentality of like, go out and seek your fortune kind of thing. Like, I thought, I think there's, I thought, and I think there is real money to be made in the space. But also part of it was just, you know, this is where I think I'm going to enjoy getting up every morning and going to work and, and, and doing this stuff. So I decided, I was like, okay, I got to do this. I've got no idea how I'm going to do this. Uh, so I'm going to take the lazy man's option, which is go to business school. Um, and I, I sort of pulled the, pulled the, pulled the, the cord, left my law firm, uh, went up to Said up at Oxford um, to do an MBA. Um, and I really had no idea what was going to come from it. And I showed up there for our course in you know beginning of October 2008, a week or two weeks after Lehman Brothers had failed and the entire world economic system was going to you know, wherever. Um, and, you know, it was a funny experience because I had a lot of classmates who'd gone to business school because they really wanted to become investment bankers and this was the way to do it. And they were kind of shitting themselves quite, you know, quite rightly. <laughs> like it was a really bad time to be in that position. But what I was starting to see was, you know, hey, opportunity cost is really low now. Like Goldman Sachs isn't coming knocking and trying to offer me a whole lot of money. You know, we're going to have to ride out this fairly challenging economic cycle. Um, you know, I'm sure I could get paid and feed myself and, and, and make do in some sort of a role, but what a great time to look at starting something. And just by good luck and happenstance, um, I met uh, Carlos, who became my co-founder, and we started working on the idea for Cedars first as a, an academic project, and then sat down one day and said, you know, this thing, this thing has legs. This thing could actually work, couldn't it? And let's... Uh, you know, let's forget about just trying to find some job to make do for the next few years. Let's give this a try and see where it goes. And that was that. And we set off to just to, to start building it from there. The best decision I ever made. But so, so, and that was in 2008 and Cedars was oh, written no, oh, eight, in 2009. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, so, oh yeah. yeah. So we, um, our business school year was 08, 09. We started working on it full time in we were working on it during business school, but really set full time after we finished Oxford about November 2009. We launched in July 2012. And that entire delay was regulatory because the big challenge for what we were doing was nobody had ever done this, at least legally before. Some people had done it illegally. But, you know, you are intermediating investments and that is a regulated activity. It is in any developed country. And, you know, we took the view with my sort of dorky lawyer hat on that, you know, let's actually comply with the law. Let's 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 build a model that actually works under the law and then go as required to the FCA, get authorized to conduct financial services businesses um, and, and, and go do it. And that was a long and brutal process. Um, and it was made more brutal by the fact that at the time, I don't know if any of you were doing or involved in fintech businesses, but, you know, today, 
the FCA has become very open to and very welcoming of innovation. They've got this regulatory sandbox. They've got this opportunity to interact. You know, there was none of that then. They, they, this is you know, 2009, you know, 2010. They really, they weren't opposed, but they just had no idea how to deal with a business like ours. And, and, and I, I remember late 2009, just about the time that we were starting full time, um, I, I, we had a contact with the then head of the FSA, what was, it was then the FSA, and I had a guy called Hector Sants through, through Side Business School. Anyway, I got in touch with him, and I basically said, high level, look, this is what we're kind of interested in doing. Would really love to be able to sit down with one of your policy people and just talk about where some of the issues might be and how we can work with them. Um, and I, I, I get this amazing letter back about a week later from somebody who's letterhead says something like he's the head of policy at the FSA and it's you know dear Mr. Lynn you know thank you so much for your letter to Hector Sands he's passed it on to me I understand you'd be interested in a, a meeting to discuss your business no uh, sincerely yours and I mean that was it. I mean you know and and it was it, it was literally our job was and, and and it was made quite clear to us our job was to go out put together a fully fledged model um, and then present it to the regulator for approval. And that meant dotting every I, crossing every T. The application we submitted wound up being 500 pages. Um, it was a very, very brutal and long process to get there. Um, and I think it was in part because of our experience and a couple of the other early, early-ish fintechs that the, that the regulators said, you know what, maybe, maybe there's a better way to do this. So we spent two and a half, almost three years kind of banging our head against the wall until finally one day we got ourselves authorized. And we're like, wow, we can actually be a bit. We've all this work and we're now finally at the starting line. That's amazing because like, I guess a lot of other entrepreneurs actually just like, they saw the mountains and that they were like, okay, let, let's do something else. Like, let's so, so not do FinTech. Paul, Paul, Paul Graham, um, who founded Y Combinator and uh, is, uh, I think even more than that, is, is one of the most remarkable essayists and writers about kind of early stage business, had a piece years ago um, that he entitled Schlepp Blindness. And the, the point of it was that the you know, successful entrepreneurs are often successful because they are blind to just the schlep, the, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the, the track that's, that's going to be in front of them. And oh boy, were we, were we uh, examples of that. And, and, I, and I'll tell you, my wife still makes fun of me for this because as I said, we were, so we were finishing, we finished business schools or formal, formal end of our business school course was September of 2009. And we were working, um, you know, alongside our coursework, Carlos and I were working on the grounding and seizures. Um, and we had this plan, and I thought this was a brilliant plan. So we were graduating in September of 09. Um, I was getting married to my then fiance in October of 09. We were going to go on honeymoon, and we'd be back, you know, I'd be back in London, and, and I'd get to work full time November of 09. So I was like, this is brilliant. We'll get the whole regulatory application done by September. We'll send it in. I'll go off, get married, get, you know, have our honeymoon. We'll have fun while they're reviewing it. Get back in November. We'll get our approval through and we'll get underway with business. So when we launched in July 2012, it proved that that was a little bit of an overly optimistic statement, you know. <laughs> yeah, a delayed honeymoon present. Yes, exactly. A very delayed honeymoon present. And, um, you know, it was so, it, it, yeah, I mean, look, the, I think there is a lot of value as a startup 
and as a founder, I, it, I mean, there's this great balance. If you don't want to be so crazy and so unrealistic that what you're trying to pursue is unachievable, but not being fully cognizant of the challenge ahead is really very valuable. And I, and I see this, you know, I, I, I see this every day now at the, you know, where we are as a business, because we're now, you know, we're, we're 70 people or so. We have all sorts of highly sophisticated modeling and forecasting systems in place. And, you know, we sit down and we know exactly what next month and the, you know, next six months are supposed to look like. And at the same time, I'm just like, you know, there's, there's an element of just go do it and see where it winds up because you, you know, you can't predict absolutely everything. And, you know, how do you balance those two? I'm, I, I, I definitely orient myself a little bit more toward, you know, don't think too much about the consequences try it and see where it lands you, um, you know, and I think that's a good voice to have in a business. It can't be the only voice you have in a business. Yeah, definitely. And like something that strikes me to me is that, so just like we were discussing in the UK, so maybe, maybe thanks to you and thanks to Cedars, now crowdfunding, equity crowdfunding is actually a thing and you can do it and, and it's legal. Yep. However, if you go to the US, it's completely illegal. You need to be an accredited investor, which means that you need to have something like 1 million in assets or something else. So it's not everyone can actually participate in a fundraising. Um, or crowdfunding, so, yep. so to speak. So, um, like, do you think that in the US they're lacking the Jefflin or Cedars uh, who would do that? Who would do that regulatory? Push? You know, it's it, it's it's interesting. No, the, the 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 there are some great people who've been working on this in the US for a number of years, and I've gotten to know a lot of them. The U the US suffers from a, a very different problem, which is, and, and this is. You know, sorry, a little bit lawyerly, but but it, it I I find it interesting, and and, and maybe you will. So, nineteen um, twenties, uh, stock markets sort of crashed around the world. Um, by that point in the U.S., a lot of ordinary people, what we would call retail investors, um, were actually in the market. A lot of people lost their life savings, um, and so the U.S. felt that it needed to adopt a fairly strict set of regulations in order to help protect investors going forward. In Britain and in Europe, there was a much smaller retail investor community at that point. And so, although some sort of very high net worth and institutions lost their money in those market crashes, there was no particular impetus to adopt a kind of wide-ranging set of financial regulations. So you've got this big set of financial regulations in the U.S. in the 1930s with no real equivalent here. Fast forward to the 1990s and early 2000s, and Britain and most European countries started to see a real increase in the level of retail investment. And although there wasn't necessarily a crisis that precipitated it, that was the point at which countries started to say, hey, now's the time that we should really be putting in place comprehensive regulatory systems. So what's the result of that? In the US, you're dealing with a 1930s vintage regulatory system. And in the UK and Europe, you're dealing with a 2000s vintage system. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean, I mean, you know, even, I mean, two, you know, the year 2000, nobody, you know, the, the legislators didn't have a full understanding of where the internet was going and what the possibilities were going to do. But they kind of future-proofed stuff enough that they, that they, you know, that they, they recognized innovation was coming and they built a set of rules that were largely principles-based, that were largely about giving, giving people the opportunity, giving finance the opportunity to continue to grow and innovate within a set of protections. The U.S. system is really very specifically based on a model of fundraising and investment 
that doesn't exist anymore. Like, well, the, like the main risk or one of the main risks that the U.S. system is worried about, particularly when it comes to crowdfunding, is literally the, a guy showing up in a town, going door to door, selling certificates in like an oil well or some company or something, um, and then like skipping town and the papers are worth nothing. Like that was the kind of thing people were worried about in the 30s. And it's really hard, unless you actually sit down and overhaul an entire system, which isn't going to happen in the U.S., it's really hard to kind of patch from that. So what you wound up with in the U.S. by when we were starting here, and, and we looked at both systems, and we looked at some of the other, other systems in the world, was you know, we had a system here where we said, okay, so if we sort of structure the model this way, and we do this, and we sort of achieve these key goals of the regulator, this will actually work within the system. In the U.S., it was just you cannot do this, and you would need actual legislative change to make it happen. No amount of innovation was going was to make it possible. Um, what's really interesting is that legislative change actually did happen, and I, I had this very strange experience in, in 2011 where I'd gotten to know some policymakers in Washington who were very interested in what we were doing, and you know, I guess by virtue of the fact that I was American by birth and, and was doing this stuff over in the U.K., they wanted to hear from me. And so they asked me to come over to testify um, before a congressional hearing. And at the time I was invited, it was like a couple, of, a couple of really innovative congressmen who were just interested in learning a little bit about crowdfunding. I remember sitting with my wife at breakfast a couple days before I was meant to fly out. And I, I see this sort of set of tweets come across that President Obama had decided to weigh in on this and decided this thing was a great idea. And all of a sudden I was like, holy shit, this thing's actually going to happen now. <laughs> like this kind of, yeah. And, um, you know, and so it did. A, a piece of legislation, you know, I, I wound up going over and testifying. That was the next day a piece of legislation was introduced, you know, through a series of sort of paths. Um, it, was, uh, it was eventually signed into law. But it was so complex and so watered down that basically, as you say, it, it, it got to a result that worked for accredited investors. Before then, you couldn't even do what we do for accredited investors. And it got to a pretty good result for, for them. But the, there was just so much reluctance under the way the system worked um, in, in, you know, to allow ordinary people to invest. To the so you mentioned, so you, you used an example about like in the US, they're afraid of, uh, you know, someone arriving in a small village and just knocking door to door and offering certificates in, 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 in exchange for money. Yep. Uh, so that kind of, kind of like um, makes me think of ICOs <laughs> because yep. it's a new it's a new phenomenon. So I, I don't know if you all know about ICOs. So ICO stands for initial initial coin offering. And it's something that, that has been, I don't know, around for quite a few years now. Um, and it's essentially a process through which uh, a cryptocurrency project uh, raises money by offering uh, a share of its tokens, of its coins, uh, instead of money to, to investors. Uh, so it's a, it's a type of crowdfunding mm -hmm. in, in, some, in some way. So it's, it's going to be a very, very wide question, but so... What do you think about this phenomenon, um, and what does it mean for crowdfunding? That's it. Now, look, it's a great question. It's one that we're spending a lot of time thinking about and looking about. A couple members of our team uh, were out in California last week at a big ICO conference, and 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 you know this is this is big stuff. And it is it is interesting. You know, it's it's you know you go through the years i think in in any business or anything you work in but certainly in technology you go through the years with lots of kind of incremental improvements and then or incremental changes and then all of a sudden overnight something big comes comes out of sort of out of nowhere and 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 this was one i mean i was 
you know, well aware of cryptocurrency in the sense of the major sort of, you know, tradable, the Bitcoins and the Ethers of the world, was well aware of the use of blockchain for various types of, 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 of you know, for smart contracts and for various sorts of digitization of assets. Um, but I sort of went from not having heard of an ICO to like, having it all over my feed within a matter of a couple of weeks. And and so, you know, it was, it, it, it's really become massive these last six months or so. Um, what do I think of it? I, I think one, one of the kind of core tenets when you think about the role of technology in finance is that, you know, it, it te there's nothing about tech that fundamentally changes the economic or financial reality of a transaction. You know, tech makes transactions a lot easier to do. It lowers transaction costs. It democratizes. It creates transparency. It does all sorts of wonderful things that allow you to take transactions and use them in a much broader um, way than, than, than you otherwise could. But an economic transaction that wouldn't have been a good tra transaction without the technology doesn't suddenly become, I mean, you know, maybe by cutting cost margins, you tilt it a bit, but something that's a bad deal to begin with doesn't suddenly become a great deal by virtue of the technology. So when you look at ICOs, I think that the more, the interesting question is what's being tokenized and every business is creating, you know, every business that's launching an ICO is creating a different sort of coin with a different sort of purpose. Some of them are, you know, utility coins, so they're intended to be used within the ecosystem of that business to purchase things of value. Some of them are seen as you know, security coins where they may be tied to a revenue stream. I mean, somebody, somebody tried, the SEC blocked it, but somebody tried recently, to, you know, last year to launch a an ICO for um, uh, that essentially securitized the future income streams of uh, YouTubers. Um, you know, it, it, there are a whole number of different things that people are doing with this. And in my mind, if the fundamental thing that you're trying, you know, if the pricing and the fundamental thing that you're trying to tokenize is valuable and sensible, then I think using a blockchain-based, you know, token is a brilliant idea. It's it, it's wonderful, and you know there are going to be a lot of businesses out there who can use this as a way of financing their activities that is different from sort of just straight equity. Um, that's great, but I also think, as in you know many cases, when something new like this comes, for all the good stuff, there's a lot of dross, and what we're seeing is a lot of people doing ICOs for stuff that has no real underlying value, but oh, because it's an ICO and because it's cryptocurrency, maybe that makes it valuable. And it, it, and it doesn't, like it doesn't hold. And so we're in a bubble, no question about it. The bubble will burst, no question about that. Um, the most interesting thing to me is trying to really understand as best as I can what is still standing after the bubble bursts. And, you know, I'm very conscious of 99, 2000, you know, just be, I mean, and, and, you know, people back then would have said, we're in a bubble, the internet's not going to be a real thing, there's going to be no future internet companies. Well, the first part of that statement was true. We were in a bubble. But after the bubble burst, there was still something of great value there, and it continued to grow. And I think that's the world we're in now. And so I, I, I'm really keen to try to understand. I don't have, I don't know the answer yet, but I'm keen to understand what component, what types of coins, what types of businesses, you know, are going to be left standing after the bubble bursts. Um, and then, you know, in terms of how that impacts um, what we do, you know, I think we'd love to find a way to be part of that. You know, if we can add value, 
you know, by, for example, intermediating the ICO, good ICOs going forward um, and providing some of the infrastructure and marketing and resource the way we do for equity offerings and the regulatory structure, um, I think we would, we would love to do so. Um, I think ultimately they're not going to displace equity crowdfund or equity. I mean, I think, you know, shares in a business have been an investment mechanism for 150 years. That's not going away overnight. And if we can't find the right way to enter the market, then we'll keep doing what we do. And I think that's fine. But I'm enthusiastic. I'd, I'd love to be part of this. We just have to find what's the, what's the real durable sort of meat here. So we recently launched a secondary market um, on our platform. It's very limited at the moment. So it literally is just if you are already an investor in one of the businesses, like if you already bought in the primary offering for us, you can add to your stake or you can sell down your stake a little bit. It's very much a sort of beta version. But the goal is to expand that further and further and, you know, hopefully create, you know, a, a decent, you know, and robust secondary marketplace that sits alongside the primary. And second, you know, if you can make a secondary market work, that's generally a good thing in any asset class because it encourages more people to go in on a primary basis. You know, the two, the two things that suck about investing in very early stage businesses is one, a lot fail, and two, those that succeed take a long time to pay out. The secondary market solves the second of those. It doesn't solve the failure issue. It doesn't solve the fact that you've got a skewed distribution returns. The only thing that solves that is diversification and you know, making sure that you have a, a broad portfolio. But a secondary market means people can get out earlier and that allows, that encourages more people to come in. Um, at the same time, you know, I am very conscious that there have been scores of people who've tried to build secondary markets for private companies through the years and have almost to a number failed. I mean, the closest that anybody ever came to running a standalone business as a secondary market for private companies was a company called Second Market based in New York um, in the you know early part of this decade. And they got to the point where they were quite successfully trading in about 50 private companies all of which were closely pre-IPO. Much of their business was Facebook in the two years before it IPO'd, and then they were doing Groupon and Twitter and a number of others. Um, and I knew those guys, and I remember talking to them, and they had this vision of expanding out to 12,000 companies, and they were going to do anything from A round beyond, et cetera. Um, and even they, who had come closest to making it work, really never made, uh, ne never made it work. And they're all, it's, it's hard. It is hard to maintain liquidity. Um, in private companies, you don't have, and you don't really want to have. You know, you don't want to make companies be disclosing constant information. Otherwise, they may as well be public, right? Like so, you know, regular updates and regular basic sort of things are fine. The formal reports and detailed management accounts and all, like you don't really want that. And without that, it's hard to really get liquidity. So. Slightly long-winded way of saying, I think there's a role for secondary. I think it will continue to play a part in our platform, an increasing part. I think it's an exciting thing, but I think it has real limits. And I think that, you know, we do better to some degree framing this space and framing what we do as being fundamentally about, you know, you are investing in this illiquid thing and there might be some interesting secondary opportunities along the way rather than poof, we've transformed an illiquid asset. From a pure sort of chronological perspective, we started on the business side. So we got, you know, we, we got 18 businesses lined up with campaigns on the platform 
before we opened to investors. So the moment our store, you know, our shop doors opened, there was something on the shelves. Um, how the hell we got those 18 businesses, I'm still not really sure. I mean, you know, it was, it was one of these things where looking back, I mean, I think that it was a slightly different time. Raising very early seed capital was even harder then than it is today. Some people took a chance on us. We sort of charmed and bought people beers. And, you know, I mean, it was, it was, it was a, a little bit of kind of just, you know, good old-fashioned kind of, you know, growth hacking type stuff. But we, we, we got those businesses onto the platform. But... In terms of kind of our priorities and how we saw the scale of the market, to us, the constraint was always going to be around um, investment. And that if we, our feeling was that if we could get investors, you know, as we tried to get the flywheel going, if there was capital there to fund, we'd get the businesses. But that it didn't necessarily work the other way around, that you could wind up with a lot of businesses on the platform and tumbleweed coming from the investors. So we spent, once we had a, once we had something in the, win, the, the window to show, we spent a lot of our energies for six months, nine months in trying to create a base of investors who would actually invest in these deals. And a lot of it was just about getting those first deals done, showing we could be successful, showing that there was liquidity on the platform. And I think that, I think that proved to be critical. I then think we made a mistake. I think that over time, I, in particular, sort of kept going down that route. And our chief investment officer, who was our you know first employee in London, and is 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 you know an, an amazing individual and is still you know a key leader of the business, um, was the one who really sat back and said, you know, there's only so much we can get in the way of investors without really interesting deals. And we should start allocating more resource to getting some of these marquee, prominent deals because that'll bring in investors. And ever since I think we had that observation, it's been a lot of back and forth. You know, now, now I think we're at a scale where we're able to do both at the same time. But in early years, it was like, okay, for a couple of months, we're going to focus all our efforts on entrepreneurs. All right, we got that little bit up. Now we're going to do a bunch of, we're going to show off these great entrepreneurs to these investors and get that up. And it was a lot of kind of back and forth. Um, the, you know, there's in some businesses, maybe there's an easy answer to that. In us, it was for us, there was a lot of nuance and it was a lot of kind of trial and error and, and, and going back and forth to figure out which we're very ambitious in terms of growth. I mean, I think the key the key areas that interest us are probably kind of along three axes. One is just doing a broader and broader range of deals. So continuing to do bigger deals, continuing to do deals across more and more sectors, um, you know, continuing to. You know, start. You know, we're already. We one big jump for us were, was when we went from kind of pre-institutional deals to co-investing with VCs, which we do a lot now. Someday, I don't know, maybe we'll co-invest with private co-invest with private equity firms and do that kind of thing. So, that's exciting. Um, second is just investor types. You know, retail investors are the core of the platform. They're amazing. We're now talking more and more with intermediaries who are still representing retail investors, but not as much on a self-directed basis. I think there's scope for institutional investors and many others. Um, you know, we have a little bit of that now, but more and more of that. Um, and then the third is geographic. Um, Europe really excites us. Um, I think that, you know, I, I, I think the European ecosystem is very special in a number of ways, but part of it is 
that, that I like so much is that it is so multipolar and that you have startup hubs in so many different places with a lot of connective tissue between them. You know, everybody goes to conferences in different cities and people get to know each other, but you know, you're drawing on the strengths and the peculiar kind of advantages of each different place. And I think that, you know, to really tap into the Berlin scene, the Paris scene, the Stockholm scene, you know, you name it, um, is is really appealing to us. And we've got a long way to go. You know, we just started scratching the surface over the last year with Amsterdam and Berlin and there's a long way to go. So more wider range and bigger deals, wider range and bigger investors, more geographic expansion. Um, that'll keep us busy for a little bit. There are actually two dimensions to it. In my case, I, I was really determined to do something like this. Like I, and I got that I, I, you know, I, I got that I was at a stage in my life. I mean, you know, told you this, the, the chronology. I was just about to get married. Kids were going to be a few years away at least. So I was in a position where, if I was ever going to do this, this was the, that was the time. And I think even, even in a hot job market you know, at that age and in that position, I probably would have made the same trade. It might have been harder. There might have been external pressures. You know, my wife has been massively supportive, but you know, you always have family and others who are just kind of like, what are you doing? You're throwing away your great education. You know, so it, you, you, you get that. And, and, you know, I'm not saying it would have been easy, but I think I probably would have persevered. What would have been a lot harder though was hiring. So, you know, a lot of our first employees, including Tom Davies, our chief investment officer, who I mentioned earlier, you know, were in not terribly dissimilar positions from, from me. And so, you know, he, he and, and many others that we hired were, he, he'd been a lawyer as well, he really wanted to do something different, wanted to get in a different world, was thinking about founding his own thing, and we got introduced and, you know, a chance to join us where we were, you know, wound up working out. But, you know, it was, it, we were still in a job market at that point where what we needed to pay for somebody of his quality was reasonable. I don't know that we could get somebody of his quality today at that, at that price. Obviously, you know, he's progressed up over time, but if we were starting and with the cash limitations we had. So I would be much more worried about how we would be able to finance I, even even if I could have taken the plunge myself, I'm, I'd be much more worried about how how we could have gotten the kind of team that we managed to get in a strong economy. And I, and I've always said that I think that you know I I think startups are in many ways um, uncorrelated to the broader economy. There's, you know you can have cyclical businesses which do well in good times, bad in bad times. You have negatively correlated businesses that do the opposite, and then you have uncorrelated businesses where you sort of, they aren't really affected by the economy. And I, and I think startups are affected, but with countervailing pressures. On one end, when there's a lot of money out there, it's easier to raise and potentially easier to sell your product, but you gotta pay people a whole lot more to come on board, the opportunity costs, all sorts of things become more expensive. Starting a business in a down economy, sure it was tough to raise money, but at the same time, you know, it was a lot easier to hire great people and negotiate really cheap leases and things like that. Um, you know, I mean, I, we paid, I don't know how many of you have, you know, have, have taken commercial real estate in, 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 in London in, in recent years, but I'll give you a sense that the office we took just down the road in Rivington Street um, in 2012, uh, we were paying uh, 25 or 26 pounds a square foot for, and I was horrified. Like, I thought that was an outrageous amount of money. Three years later, we bid for a new place of about the same quality, 74 pounds a square foot, and we lost because somebody outbid us. 
you know, and so, you know, the, econ you know, it, <laughs> the economy, a, a slightly weaker economy was in many ways a great boon to us in early days. So, you know, I, I, I don't know how it all would have balanced out. I think you can do businesses in either time. I'm glad that we started in the downturn. I think that was a, a, a good time for us. I think for other businesses that, that so so the key point there is that we're a platform rather than an investor and so we are very studiously not making our own investment decision our job is to do fundamentally two things one is to make sure the deal is what it says it is so we do a comprehensive due diligence on the campaign that they build make and it's, it's a whole long process of you know every statement that's factual we see evidence to support anything that's aspirational we make sure that it's properly phrased and structured um, but it's all getting at making sure that this business is what it says on the tin, um, you know, and then we do a whole sort of legal due diligence process as well to make sure the business and the investment are properly structured. And then on top of that, we have what we kind of call a curation element, which is simply that as market makers, you know, it's not that we want 100% of our deals to fund. To some degree, we want to put out an array and let investors choose what they want to back. But the, the longer we go, the more we have a feel for what's likely to work and what's not, what's likely to appeal to investors and what's not. And if we know a deal, even if we think it might be a great investment, frankly, if we just know it's not going to get legs on the platform, we generally won't put it on. So we try to given us you know we try to assess is this likely to be interesting to enough of the market that it's worth putting out there but that's the extent of our kind of normative decision making and we really very firmly believe that 200 or 500 or a thousand you know professionals from a wide range of different backgrounds voting with their wallets on a particular business is a better way of picking businesses than me sitting in an office saying, yes, you know you. Um, and so, you know, it's always a balance. And, you know, I'm sure we've turned away businesses that, could, that we got wrong. We've certainly accepted businesses that didn't go anywhere. But, the, you know, we try as hard as we can to, to do it in a way that, you know, all the, all, all the disclosure, all the legals, everything is in order, but the investment decision sits with the investors. We allow businesses from anywhere in Europe. I mean, basically our rule, we're open across Europe and, you know, although t technically we can have businesses from anywhere in the world, we're, we, we're able to take investors from anywhere in Europe and we sort of say that the business kind of has to be somewhere in, 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 in Europe as well. And we have a pretty broad definition of what Europe means for those purposes. Uh, so yeah, um, open across Europe, we've had, we've had Croatian deals, we've had Bulgarian deals, uh, we've, I don't know if we've ever done a Serbian deal, but we would. I mean, are you Serbian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I wouldn't, you know, that, that's fine. Um, yeah, no, all, you know, we're, 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 we're very, we're very open. Sometimes the question we, you know, the, that when I say broad definition, you know, the, the one that always comes up as a question mark is Israel. Um, and, you know, people have put to us many times that because Israel's in the Eurovision Song Contest, they should be, we should allow them on the platform. And we actually probably would if it weren't for the fact that they've got this very distinct and separate start, very robust, but very separate startup ecosystem that's very linked to the U.S. And so we sort of consciously stayed out of that market. But yes, so, you know, the, the rest of Europe we're very, we're very open to. Um, uh, in terms of... Um, uh, uh, what makes certain campaigns more successful than others? You know, there's a combination of factors that, that probably the number one, and particularly where you see the really big blockbuster campaigns, where you see people getting a thousand investors or more, raising a million pounds, million five, or two million, 
Um, a lot of that has to do with motivating the community. So, so equity crowdfunding, as it is, or what we do, is, is really about combining a, a bunch of different types of investors. There are all of our investors, and they love to come into new and interesting deals. But they tend to come in sort of toward the later end of the deal. And what really gets a deal started and kicking what brings them in is the company's ability to drive its customers, its friends, its network, you know, to really start to get the deal kicking. And, and it's, the, you know, it's the classic example of, you, you know, people, you don't want to go into an empty bar. You go into the bar that's got people in it. Likewise, you know, our investors don't invest in deals that are 0% funded. They invest in deals that have got a little bit of base and every day that they check back seem to be moving up and up. So a big part of the process we work with entrepreneurs on is how do you motivate that community? In some cases, it's very easy. In some cases, you've got a big customer base that's a direct mailing list and it's just about sort of straight shots to them and that does it. You know, in other cases, you don't quite have that yet. But you've got friends and social media followers and people interested from a community perspective. And, you know, you reach them through a mix of PR and a number of other techniques. And, 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 and that helps, too. But the, that, that tends to be one of the key things is getting that community involved. And, and, and there's, you know, there's, there's the sort of people are sheep element to that. They only want to go where other investors are going. But there's also a very legitimate element, which is that, you know, at a 10 pound minimum investment level or a 10 euro minimum investment level, if you can't get your brother and you know, your roommate from uni to invest in you, that's, that's a sign, you know? And, 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 and you know, it's not to say that there aren't great businesses that have small networks, but you know, particularly when it moves from kind of the old system of you, you've got to go find some really rich people to invest to you just have to get a lot of people to invest a small amount, that's not a terrible proxy for your ability to then go out and sell and build a successful business. So that, that, that community engagement element is probably the, the single most important, probably close second is ability to tell a strong story. You know, people do really, you know, people do some great video pitches, not necessarily very high budget, but very communicative, very, you know, very, very straightforward. And, and um, you know, also in writing, you know, communicating, what is it you're doing? What are you, what are you trying to solve? How are you solving it? How's this thing going to make money? Um, so so the, the actual um, sort of economic terms of the deal are, are pretty much take it or leave it. So the, the business comes and says, we want to raise X amount. We're willing to give away Y equity. That implies the valuation. Um, and we'll have conversations about that. And again, in, the, in our, view of, our view of ourselves as a marketplace rather than an investor, we won't necessarily say we don't think you're worth that, but we will say we think that valuation is going to be a challenge for the market and we would suggest you consider something lower. But if you say no, that's where we want to go out at, you know, unless it's something so kind of out ridiculous, we'll, we'll usually say, uh, okay, that's fine. Um, and so what you're fundamentally doing as a business is going to the market with our advice, but not with our sort of, you know, decision making, you're going to the market and saying, okay, you know, invest in us on these terms. And then it is for the investors to decide whether they like the business at that price. Um, there is a lot of dialogue between investors 
and the company over the course of the campaign. So there's a whole Q&A section and chance to request additional information. Sometimes people want to dive into very specific questions. Sometimes people just want more detailed information. And that helps, I think, formulate some of the feedback that, invest, that the, the deals get. And sometimes companies will find that the feedback they're getting is, yeah, we like what you're doing, but really not at this price. So they wind up lowering the price and coming back at a, you know, at, at, at a lower price. So there is that kind of you know, one-on-one interaction. But fundamentally, it is sort of a take-it-or-leave-it model where you know, investors, if they want to be in the deal, that's the price they're getting in at. Otherwise, they pass on the deal. Thank you all. Thanks for your questions. Thanks for listening to The Wagon Live. Tune in next week for another episode. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to our series by clicking the subscribe button.